Welcome to Let's Talk Micro. Hello, dear listeners. Welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Micro. As always, I hope you had a great week. And if this is your first time listening or if you're a returning listener, welcome. As always, you can find Let's Talk Micro on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Pandora, GoodPods, whatever you listen to podcasts, you can find Let's Talk Micro. And as far as social media, I am on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube as Let's Talk Micro, on X as Let's Talk Micro 1, on LinkedIn as Luis Plaza, and I have an email address which is Let's Talk Micro at Outlook.com. So either via social media or via email, you can reach out with any feedback, any suggestions. They are always welcome and appreciated. So please go ahead and subscribe to the podcast, download episodes, and if the app allows you to do so, please go ahead and leave a review. I am so grateful for your support. And if you haven't listened to the previous episode, please go ahead and do so. It was the next episode of the AMR subseries, and it was about aminoglycosides. And as always with the AMR subseries, I was joined by Andrea Prinzi, and then we always bring a guest. And in the spirit of Let's Talk Micro, we break down things, right? So we break down aminoglycosides, and we talk about things like mechanism of action, intrinsic resistance. We talk about the CSI M100. All in all, it was a great episode, so I invite you to check it out. And of course, you know, speaking of antimicrobials, if you're looking to learn more about antibiotics, please check out www.learnantibiotics.com and the Learn Antibiotics book available on Amazon. These resources include cheat sheets, practice tests, games, and more, and they are being used by thousands of people worldwide and may be helpful for you or your colleagues. Great resources from Dr. Timothy Gauthier, a very passionate pharmacist, so I definitely invite you to check them out. So today's episode is longer than normal, so I'm just gonna do a quick introduction, but it was a great episode, and I was joined by Amelia Bathnagar, and she works at the Office of Laboratory Strategies and Analytics from the Centers of Disease Control and Prevention, or CDC, and she does work with the with the CDC's AR Laboratory Network, which is the Antimicrobial Resistance laboratory network. So Amelia joins the podcast and she talks about what type of work the AR laboratory network does, the importance of this work, and she talks about a uh, evaluation that they did on the Thermo Fisher Sensitizer GN7F panel. And some of you might be familiar with the Sensitizer, you might be performing it in your lab. So Amelia joins the podcast and she talks about this study, she talks about how that panel did, and she breaks it down. She talks about the organisms, the drugs that the panel includes, limitations. She goes over the results. She talks about very major errors, major errors. She talks about what happened to the panel. All in all, it was a great episode. And I always have such a positive experience when I have a guest from the CDC. So shout out to the CDC for always being very prompt on your responses, for agreeing to do the episodes. I appreciate it. So it is a great episode. Let's go ahead and listen to it. So as we have talked before on the on the podcast, um, you know, AMR, it's definitely a trending topic in microbiology. And, you know, we hear things, you know, we also talk about automated susceptibility systems and different methods of performance susceptibility. So today we are here to talk about a study that was done, which was uh, the article was titled Antimicrobial Resistance Laboratory Networks multi-site evaluation of the Thermo Fisher Sensitizer GN7F broth microdilution panel for antimicrobial susceptibility testing 
This was published in the Journal of Clinical Microbiology in November of last year. So with me today, I have a guest, and her name is Amelia Bathnagar. Amelia, welcome to Let's Talk Micro. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Okay, uh, so for the audience, you know, I, I mentioned your name, Amelia, and uh, so can you tell the audience a little bit about, you know, a quick introduction about what you do and anything else that you want to say? Sure. Um, I'm a microbiologist at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, um, where I've worked for upcoming to 12 years. Um, so for the first five years, I worked in the National Antimicrobial Resistance Monitoring System. Um, so this is NARMS, and it's in the Division of Foodborne, Waterborne, and Environmental Diseases. And it's a national public health uh, surveillance system that tracks um, AR for certain enteric bacteria found in people, retail, meat, and food animals. And then in 2017, I took my current position within the Office of Laboratory Strategies and Analytics, which sits in the Clinical and Environmental Microbiology branch of the Division of Healthcare Quality Promotion. And so this is where I'm, I am an activity lead for special studies on my team, and I continue to be involved in antimicrobial susceptibility testing and antimicrobial resistance in general. So in addition, pretty relevant to the paper that we'll be talking about, a big part of my job entails working with the CDC's antimicrobial resistance laboratory network. Okay, well, thank you for that and, and welcome again. So that brings actually my, my next question and, and probably um, listeners, uh, maybe like uh, people like working maybe at the director level or positions like that, you know, they're probably aware of the AR lab network, but sometimes, you know, maybe medical lab scientists that work in the lab they might not know what it is. So for the benefit of everyone, what is the AR Lab Network? Sure. Um, I can go over first some of the history. So in 2016, CDC established uh, the AR Lab Network, and it's really an effort between U.S. healthcare and the clinical labs, public health labs, and the CDC. We want to provide nationwide lab capacity and infrastructure to rapidly detect antimicrobial resistance and to be able to inform local responses and prevent the spread of existing and newly emerging antimicrobial resistance threats. Okay, and can you talk about which facilities are part of this network? Sure. Um, so there, there are actually several um, activities that fall under this AR lab network infrastructure. So if we take a step back, um, so there's um, activities for antifungal susceptibility testing. So for Canada species, serotyping for ID of strep pneumo, AST for Neisseria gonorrhea, and then the detection of um, and characterization of certain bacteria that cause healthcare-associated infections. And this is the activity that I work in. So there are many activities, um, but this is the one that my team works on and um, that had supported this study. And so within this activity, we have all 50 states that are involved and including five large cities um, and Puerto Rico, these public health labs were funded by CDC to increase the capacity to be able to test for carbapenem resistant enterobacteriales, Pseudomonas aeruginosa and Acinetobacter belmonii. Um, we also wanted to detect certain mechanism responsible for this resistance, like carbapenemase enzymes. Um, these are including, we call them the big five carbapenemase enzymes. So that's, that's the KPC, NDM, 
OXA48 like VIM and M. And so these can spread pretty easily among bacteria. Um, and then these resistant bacteria can spread um, person to person in a healthcare facility. Um, so to, to really um, uh, combat and fight these, um, the spread of these organisms, the CDC AR Lab Network has really four um, main parts. So we have the healthcare facilities, um, the state public health labs, and of these state public health labs, we have seven that are designated the regional laboratories, and then we have CDC. Um, so I can I can go in and give you a description of kind of how all of these facilities, um, these members work together. Um, so we're starting with the healthcare facilities. So when they suspect a patient has a carbapenem resistant enterobacteriales, um, Acinobacter belmonii or Pseudomonas or a carbapenemase producing organism, they'll notify and send the clinical isolate to their public health department. And so the public health department does at the state level, they rapidly confirm the organism ID, perform molecular testing for the targeted carbapenemase genes that I mentioned. Um, and, and then another part of this testing battery is antimicrobial susceptibility testing to confirm the carbapenem resistance and to be able to provide AST for additional antimicrobials. And in the network, particularly in the beginning, most labs were using the Thermo Fisher Sensitizer GNX2F Roth microdilution panel. So all of these results are quickly reported back to the submitter in the healthcare facility so that infection prevention and control practices could be implemented to prevent the spread of some of these bacteria within the facility and among facilities. And then if we take another step up, going to the regional labs, and again, there are seven regional labs. Um, and what they do is they really complement um, the activities already done that are being done by this local and state public health lab. Um, so they provide supplemental testing, confirmational testing, and they are the leaders for support to the labs designated in their region. They also provide outbreak support by performing colonization screening in collaboration with the state public health officials, healthcare facilities, and those infection preventionists, and, and that's when needed. So as you can see, the, the state and regional public health labs do a lot of the work. So they're doing the high volume of testing for specimens and of isolates. They're working with the healthcare facilities at the local and state public health labs. And so lastly, you know, what, what do we do? What do we do at CDC with this network? And so we try to offer technical expertise in developing and implementing new lab tests or methods, and so of which includes antimicrobial susceptibility testing. In addition, guidance on testing priorities and tailored solutions and workflows so that public health labs can swiftly identify new AR threats. And we also wanna share what we learn. Um, we do this by making the data um, from the network available to the general public via a website called the Antimicrobial Resistance and Patient Safety Portal website. So it's a nice dashboard of graphics um, describing our data and we refresh it at least annually with updated data and then throughout the years with specific features and highlights. So that's like hopefully in a nutshell what um, particularly my uh, the activity I work with in the AR Lab Network does and what um, the facilities are involved in and their roles. 
Well, no, thank you for that uh, amazing explanation. You definitely, you know, hopefully, you know, the audience, if now that if you didn't know what the AR Lab, AR Lab Network was, now you know. Um, so definitely thank you for that. Okay, so now you have described the type of work you, you do, and, and can you tell us what was the purpose of the study? Sure. Um, as I previously mentioned, AST is necessary to fully characterize these targeted um, HAI um, threats. So for laboratories in the AR lab network to confidently use the new Thermo Fisher sensitizer GN7F, remember we're using the X2F um, broth microdilution panel. So CDC um, and four laboratories came together and set out to evaluate how it performed under rigorous testing. And one of the benefits of the AR Lab network is the expertise and the resources we have that allow us to really challenge these AST systems. And we had we had two main goals as part of our, our study. So first we wanted to know how well the panel performed on an atypical population um, with the phenotype that the AR Lab network expects to see. So it's not, you know, we're not looking at um, something that clinical labs would typically see where you're seeing more susceptible. We're expecting to get those really resistant bacteria. So we needed to know how it worked with the population we were expecting to have to test for. And then secondly, um, we wanted to assess the procedures in the FDA cleared insert. So this is where it gets kind of interesting. So within the uh, FDA cleared sensitizer system, there are a couple of procedures. So there are two procedures, one in which is supposed to be better at detecting resistance. Um, so we wanted to know what that impact of the different um, procedures were. And we wanted to harmonize um, recommendations to the AR Lab Network for a single standardized procedure. So making sure that we're all doing the same procedure would ensure that the results we're seeing from one lab versus another is comparable. Okay, and uh, so definitely, uh, yeah, I actually, I, I work with the Sensitizer and, okay. and I'm, <laughs> I'm sure some members of the audience, uh, they do as well. So it kind of understanding and then uh, we talk about panels and I was just wondering if you could talk real quick about the difference between the GN7F panel and the GNX2F panel as you know, what type of drugs do they include? Sure. So um, the GN7F, is, so as you know, is a, a manual broth microdilution panel. And I mentioned it's part of the Thermo Fisher sensitizer system. And prior to the study, many labs brought up the, the GNX2F panel, which is also part of the sensitizer AST system. But we were in search of something that's more updated. And that's how we came across the GN7F panel. Um, so there are quite a few drugs on, on these panels that overlap, like the carbapenems and other beta-lactams, but you know the GNX2F is older, so it did lack newer beta-lactam, beta-lactamase combo agents, um, particularly ones that we were interested in was ceftazidime abibactam, so that's a really important life-saving drug for treating infections um, caused by KPC producers. Um, and then ceftolazine, tazobactam, and ampicillin solbactam were additions on this panel. And then uh, the GNX2F also 
um, lacked some of the lower dilutions needed um, to be able to implement the updated fluoroquinolone breakpoints. So it really seemed like the right move to graduate to this newer panel based on the drugs. And, and it's interesting, there's also some key differences in how um, they market their kind of regulatory status of, of the panel. So the GN7F is marketed as an FDA cleared panel, meaning that Thermo Fisher has conducted you know, really comprehensive, rigorous multi-site studies to establish the performance characteristics for each drug on that panel. And then FDA looks at this data and determines them to be satisfactory. So in contrast, GNX2F was an RUO panel. So in that case, FDA had not reviewed um, any of the performance data. Okay. Um, and for the audience, I will definitely be putting the link to the study on the show notes. So just if you want to take the time to read it, I know like sometimes maybe some of you out there, you know, you're busy with work and other things and you rather listen to it than read it. But if you want to read it, it's going to be available in the show notes so you can take your time and and go buy it on, you know, on, at your own pace. But I just wanted to ask, I mean, maybe can you talk about the the testing that was performed with this panel and as far as, you know, organisms. And as I read the study, you know, I see terms like in like uh, labeled versus off label. Can you talk about that? Sure. Yeah. Um, I will say this was quite a large study and it was a really that that we have a lot of data in our in our paper. I'm going to try to just summarize and, and hit the high points throughout this this podcast, but there's definitely a lot more information in the paper if you would like to take the time to read it. Um, but if we start with the organisms, um, we tested a total of 100 isolates, and we tested isolates from the CDC and FDA AR bank, isolate bank. And so we had 40 isolates from the Enterobacteriales group, including um, uh, prote some, some protea tribe. Um, and then we had 30 isolates from the... Um, for Pseudomonas aeruginosa, and then another 30 for Acinetobacter baumannii. And among these isolates, we tried to have a distribution that was really a 50-50 split between susceptible and resistant strains. Um, and also where we could, we tried to test isolates that had um, MICs that were considered on scale, meaning that the expected MIC um, fell within the dilution range of the panel. And so this allowed um, for a more tangible assessment of the accuracy of the MICs. So that's like our organism distribution and, and selection. And then you mentioned um, the off-label and on-label terminology that, that we used. Um, so maybe kind of first defining what, what those terms mean. So on labels, when a user follows the manufacturer's instructions exactly, um, when off label is when a user deviates from the procedures outlined um, by the manufacturer and the IFU. And depending on your you know, accrediting agency, this may be termed FDA modified test um, or laboratory developed test. So being an on-label and off-label will really affect how the test is, is assessed and implemented in a laboratory performing testing for patient care. Um, so if someone was implementing a test on-label, um, they would perform a verification where the goal is to ensure that the AST system is performing as expected per the manufacturer in the laboratory's own hands. 
Um, but in contrast, if someone's making a deviation from the procedure or went off label, for example, um, this could be when you modify the inoculum preparation method or using different incubation period um, or conditions, the laboratory has to perform a validation. And validation is just a more robust study because now it's really up to the laboratory to show that the test has an acceptable performance, despite these deviations and what the manufacturer is telling us to do. Um, so with, with that in mind, um, we had really, whether the workflow um, in the study was considered on or off label were really driven by two factors. Um, so as I mentioned, these labs already had a sensitizer system implemented just using a different panel. Um, but within their procedures, they may have deviated by using different equipment. And so the biggest one was the biggest deviation was in the inoculum preparation um, methodology, where two laboratories were using a Beckman Coulter microscan turbidity meter instead of the um, Thermo Fisher sensitizer nephlometer. And then for one lab, they were using a, the Biomic V3, which is an automated AST panel reader, which is not also not supported by the sensitizer system. So one was the equipment. And then the second part of where um, on-label and off-label was affected was how we design the study procedures. So some of them, some of the procedures were based on the IFU, and then we had certain procedures that were not really completely based on what the manufacturer is telling us to do. Uh, thank you for that information. So as far as the results, you know, I mean, and as we said, the study is going to be there and they can read it in detail, but maybe you can talk a little bit about what kind of results, you know, as far as, you know, like essential agreement, you know, categorical agreement, you know, major errors, things like that. Mm -hmm. So um, we we had several um, procedure groups that we evaluated. So um, you know, part of the um, method or the methodology was we we changed um, there, that transfer volume is where that um, changes for the standard versus um, some of the other procedure groups that we tested. So one, if we want to first define, you know, what we looked at, so. We had the standard procedure group, and this is where um, this is completely on-label testing. So we had um, one microliter for the protea tribe, which is required in the package insert, and then we had ten microliters for all of the other non-protea tribe organisms. Um, and then we had the enhanced standard. Um, procedure, which was also completely on label. So this is where um, we had still the one microliter for the protea tribe. And then this is where that, that other procedure to enhance the detection of resistance comes into play. So for those non-protea tribe, Enterobacteriales, Pseudomonas, Acinobacter, that's where we tested with the 30 microliter transfer volume. And then we wanted to assess how we um, how the performance was if all of the organisms, including the protea tribe, um, were tested using a transfer volume of 30 microliters. So technically, it's off label for those protea tribe organisms. Um, and then we had a final uh, transfer volume of 50 microliters for all organisms. Um, and so this is completely off label. Um, we did this because. Um, 
with with reference broth microdilution, you want to get um, about five times 10 to the fifth CFU per mil. And with looking at the math behind the transfer volume and all the dilutions that happen, um, this is kind of the closest you can get to that reference um, that reference method point. Um, but we do know that, you know, this is a commercial AST system. It's not a, a reference method, but we did want to see what happened if we increase the inoculum a little more, um, would it help uh, even further? Um, so that's why we chose that group. So we took these procedure groups um, and then evaluated the, you know, typical AST performance criteria. So essential agreement, categorical agreement, um, associate errors, and those are typically your minor, um, major and very major errors. In the study, we did focus on the, the major and the very major errors. Um, and again, our comparator was the CDC and FDA error bank isolate um, results that were posted on the website. And to summarize each lab's metrics, we actually averaged the percent essential agreement and category agreement. And we looked at these performance criteria for each organism group and then also assessed bias. Um, so if we start um, looking at talking about the essential agreement across these procedure groups with the enterobacteriales, we noticed that all labs had an essential agreement of below 90% for many of the beta-lactams. And you really wanna get above that 90% 90 90 threshold. And so some of the drugs affected were the carbapenem, ceftriaxone, piptazo, um, and cefepime. But then when you shift the transfer volume and use 30 microliters for all organisms and 50 microliters for all organisms, we saw really good improvement where many of those essential agreements were above 90%. Um, and so we even saw improvements as we increased that transfer volume um, for agents that already had a good um, over 90% agreement. So for example, as Trinam, the average essential agreement was around 90 with the standard, and then 93.8 with the enhanced standard, and then it went up to 98.8, and then 99.4 finally with the 50 microliter um, transfer volume. So we were seeing this sort of um, inoculum effect, which was more pronounced with the beta-lactams. Um, and, and in general, the non-beta-lactam agents performed well across the multiple categories. Um, so if we talk now, kind of switch over to the category agreement for enterobacteriales, we first needed to determine which breakpoints to use. <laughs> and so, you know, as I mentioned earlier, this is an FDA cleared panel is how, how they're marketing it. And so this is really under the assumption, you know, when uh, devices put through or do go through FDA clearance, it's by organism and by drug all separately, not by the panel. So when, when they're saying panel, I assume that they mean that all of the drugs on the panel have received FDA clearance at some point. Um, so when we looked at the package insert, it, and it actually lacked FDA clearance for many of the antimicrobials 
applicable to the Pseudomonas aeruginosas and the Acinobacter baumannii. And so on top of that, many of the Enterobacterialis breakpoints had current clearance for outdated breakpoints. Um, we know the manufacturer is, is working on this. Um, it takes a lot of time and effort to, to update this. So, um, but at the time of the study, a lot of them were, were still outdated. So this led us to decide that we wanted to just go ahead and use the 2022 um, CLSI breakpoints. Um, but for enterobacteriales, we did take the opportunity to, opportunity to see how the category agreement and errors um, compared between the CLSI breakpoints and those outdated breakpoints in the IFU. So with the 2022 breakpoints, we saw something similar to essential agreement where the category was lower with the standard and enhanced. We did see additional lower category agreement percents for other agents like tigacycline and nitrofurantoin. Um, hopefully I said that right. But um, and then these agents, but they had really good essential agreement. So in the mid 90s across the procedure group. So we weren't really weren't worried about that. And then when we looked at the nine antimicrobials on the panel um, that had current clearance for outdated breakpoints, we saw that the category agreement for most of these antimicrobials, you know, if we were using the outdated breakpoints, which are considered on label, was actually worse than using updated breakpoints that would have been considered, you know, using the panel in an off-label manner. And this was rarely pronounced with the beta-lactams. Um, and so when we looked into what's driving these lower category agreements, um, we, we look at the type of errors that we're seeing. So again, we focus on very major errors. Um, so this is when a test says um, it's susceptible when it should be resistant. And then the major errors, which is the opposite, where the test system reports it as resistant when it should be susceptible. Um, so we saw that many labs were seeing high numbers of very major errors in the beta-lactams, you know, as high as three to four isolates minimally um, for some of the carbapenems with the standard and enhanced standard. Um, we weren't seeing any major errors. Um, and then these errors resolved when we were using the 50 and 30 microliter procedure groups. So, so that was pretty interesting and an interesting thing that we saw with um, the enterobacteriales. Um, so we do have these other two organisms that we looked at too, and they're they're less complex. Um, so again, we for for these groups, we looked at the three three procedure groups, right? So these are not proteate tribe organisms. So those proteate tribe are the Proteus providentium organella. Um, so we didn't have to do that protease tribe specific one microliter rule. Um, so we we just looked at the 10 microliters, which is considered standard, 30 microliters and 50 microliters. And really the essential agreement for all of these drugs is pretty good. Most of them were in the mid 90s across the different inoculums. Um, for category agreement, um, they're generally low for the beta-lactams and pseudomonas. And then for acinetobacter, we saw the opposite um, where category, was agree category, category agreement was lower for some of the fluoroquinolones and aminoglycosides. 
Um, so the, the errors causing these were actually not as dramatic as what we saw with Enterobacteriales. Um, so this was giving the hint that we were seeing very, we were seeing more of the minor errors rather than, you know, these other types of errors that we should be worried about. So that summarizes kind of the high points of the performance characteristics. And then when we looked at bias and trending, it really supported um, you know, what we saw with the enterobacteriales and the frequency of very major errors. Um, so a bias is, is essentially a number um, and it's the difference. So you look at your MICs and it's a difference in the proportion of MICs that are a dilution above versus a dilution below the reference, what the reference MIC should be. Um, and then when we have a trend, it could be either upward or downward, and it's an interpretation of the bias. Um, and that bias could be positive or negative. And the confidence interval has to be significant. So positive negative 30% is that threshold and to be significant. Um, is when you have a trend depending and the direction depends on the sign. Um, so this is a really um, nice way to systematically look to see, you know, are all of my MICs kind of running low or are they kind of running high? Um, and what we found wasn't unexpected with the results that um, we had seen with just looking at the performance characteristics. Um, so for enterobacteriales, for example, <clears throat> Um, we found that the inoculums that make up the standard group, so that one microliter for the protea tribe um, had a negative bias of 83%, which is quite high. Um, and then the 10 microliter had a negative bias of 64%. And of course, these were uh, indicated as a downward trend. And so that bias became less and less as we increased the inoculum. So when we went all the way up to 50 microliters, we had a negative 8% bias um, and there was no trend. Um, and so for Acinobacter, we saw something similar, not as, as dramatic um, as we kind of saw with the enterobacteriales. Um, we had a smaller negative bias with the 10 microliters of negative 27 when we push it up to 50 microliters, we saw a little bit of a higher bias of point, um, sorry, 5.9. So it was the opposite um, we saw for Pseudomonas where there is still a little negative bias um, of 11%, but then we were seeing um, with 50 microliters, a pretty high bias. But again, these don't have trends. So it was 23% of that 50 microliters. Um, so this really confirmed um, what we suspected that the lower transfer volumes, particularly with the enterobacteriales, was providing MICs that were lower than expected and contributing to um, having more very major error types. So I know that was a mouthful. <laughs> so I'll pass it back to you, Luis. No, no, thank you. That was that was great and very interesting indeed uh, how um as the concentration uh, was increased and, and how some, you know, results improve. Um, yeah, when I was reading that and now listening to you uh, say it, uh, definitely very interesting. Um, so by now, you know, you kind of just, while you were summarizing the study, you were talking about um, mentioning some things as far as things that, you know, how 
about the results that work well and didn't anything else as far you know with any study some things you know work well sometimes they don't we encounter limitations is there any anything that you can talk about that Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, you know, going back to what worked well, um, you know, to summarize the last, you know, five minutes or whatever that I was rambling, we we generally saw that um, the the GN7F performed really well for the Acinetobacter, um, Balmanii, and Pseudomonas aeruginosa. Um, we weren't seeing those drastic differences in the performance among uh, across the inoculum, whether it was 10 versus 30 versus 50, which was in contrast to what we were seeing with the enterobacteriales, um, where we saw using the procedure groups with a lower inoculum so that one microliter and 10 microliters did not perform well. Um, and this was particularly prominent in the performance characteristics, again, like having really low essential agreement, um, pretty high frequency of very major errors, but then resolving when you bring that inoculum up to all organisms to have 30 or 50 microliters. So we wanted to investigate some of these very major errors since we were seeing them in, in a pretty high frequency. Um, so for, we have, we had a, a second phase that was dedicated to some discrepancy testing in our study. Um, so the, the first phase is because of how many very major errors we were seeing, um, we, we took a different approach to just repeating all the testing. So um, we, we looked at all of the errors and the frequency of errors among the groups and we pulled isolates that where almost all of the labs had the same error. So it's a common denominator of an error across all the labs and we wanted to see what was going on with these isolates. And at CDC, we have the capacity to do reference broth microdilution testing. Um, so we, we, we make our own panels and we perform AST with this um, reference method and we do all of this per the procedures outlined in the CLSI M7 document. And this is actually the same method that the manufacturers test their devices against when um, assessing performance. So we had 12 isolates um, and did the same um, procedures that we did in phase one with the different testing, the different transfer volumes, but we added another arm <laughs> already to, you know, the, the almost Three, three arms that we had going on. So um, from that same inoculum, we did reference broth microdilution side by side. Um, so testing side by side is really a close of a comparison of AST methods as you can do. Um, and we actually found that when, even when we did this testing, all of those errors repeated. Um, so we were getting resistant with the reference broth microdilution from the same inoculum and a, you know, susceptible or intermediate, depending on the inoculum, on the GN7F um, panel. Um, so these errors reproduced even in the most optimal test conditions for comparison. And it was really shocking because we found that we would not only miss carbapenem-resistant organisms, but we're also going to miss carbapenemase-producing organisms. So we were seeing protease tribe isolates 
that were ha that had carbapenemases, and we're talking about NDMs and KPCs, test completely susceptible to all of the carbapenems using the GN7F panel with the one microliter transfer volume, which, you know, again, is what is in the FDA cleared procedure. And that's, you know, what the manufacturers are wanting us to do. So this is obviously a big problem for us is the major objective of healthcare associated infection activities within the AR lab network is to detect carbapenem resistant gram negatives, including these carbapenemase producers that can easily spread. And they would typically enter first enter into the network by a phenotypic definition of resistant to at least one or more carbapenem. So in addition to you know missing these in our routine testing with within the network by the time it makes it to the public health lab, we could actually be missing these dangerous organisms from from the get-go at the submission stage. So this made it clear that we were seeing pretty true performance issues with the panel using the one microliter. So using the one microliter, 10 microliters was really out of the question for us. Um, and so we still had to decide between the 30 and 50 microliters. Um, with any study, we, we did have limitations. Um, so when we did further um, discrepancy testing, you know, we already decided, you know, the, the data shows that the one microliter and 10 microliter, we, we cannot use that. Um, so we were deciding between 30 and 50, and that's when the laboratories did um, their discrepancy testing. So they did not do any additional discrepancy testing um, with the one microliter or 10 microliter. But we think the study that, you know, the reference comparator side by side was um, a sufficient justification at this point. Another limitation um, was that uh, I mentioned before, you know, we used a challenging set of isolates representing the more resistant strains. And a lot of the results tended to be near the breakpoint, which is why we didn't really um, emphasize the minor errors. Um, but we did think this was appropriate given, you know, the potential use of this panel and the AR lab network and the kind of isolates we expected to see. Another, you know, limitation I mentioned before was the use of the turbidity meter, which is a Beckman-Coulter microscan product and not the sensitizer nephlometer in two of the five labs. Um, we did look at the impact of the bias and trend and saw that the sensitizer nephlometer generally had lower MICs um, than when using the Beckman-Coulter turbidity meter. Um, and we saw this for Enterobacteriales and Acinobacter baumannii, where there's a small, a lower trend, or sorry, bias um, with that, and then the opposite for Pseudomonas aeruginosa. But I actually think, you know, with these instruments, these instruments have, you know, fundamental differences in how they result to standardizing the 0.5 McFarland equivalency, and it was actually interesting to learn that the 0.5 McFarland standard that the sensitizer nephlometer uses um, is calibrated to a CFU per mil of one times 10 to the eighth, which is at the low end of a range for 0.5 McFarland. So that your target really for 0.5 McFarland is 1.5 times 10 to the eighth. 
Um, and that's what our microscan turbidity meter was calibrated to. So I'm suspecting that that's um, influencing more of why we're seeing results from the nephlometer just running lower than the results generated by a turbidity meter rather than the fact that they're different instruments. And our last limitation is that we did use you know, 2023 breakpoints. Um, the study was published in late 2023, um, but we were using 2022 breakpoints. And you know this is really due to the time period that the data analysis of the study took place. Thank you for that. You know that was that was great. And I'm not gonna take too much of your of your time. You know you already um, have have given us so much great information. Um, so as far as I just have one question and probably the audience and you know you're listening to the the results and everything. So I just wanted to ask. So what happened to the panel at the end? So <clears throat> at the end of our study, we we for for us, what happened to us is we um, eventually decided um, that you know thirty microliters for all of the organisms was the most practical way forward. Um, the performance across the groups is very good. Um, the balance between undercalling of MICs with enterobacteriales and acinetobacter, then balancing that with some of the overcalling biases that we were seeing. And we also didn't have to go um, completely off-label. But I think, um, you know, what happened in general af after our study there, you know, there was a voluntary recall and I'm sure you saw the communication go out. Um, it was a voluntary FDA class one recall for all of the FDA cleared Thermo Fisher sensitizer panels containing Doripenem, Ertapenem, Miropenem, Imipenem and Cefepime uh, and Astrinam uh, due to the risk of false susceptible results with these antimicrobials and the protease tribe. <clears throat> so the panel was not taken off market, but they did um, supply communications, um, imposing limitations um, where the users are not to report any results from the protease tribe organisms. Um, so we we are also still waiting to, to hear about a resolution and how um, these this group of organisms would be tested and reported in the future. Um, but I think this action highlights the need for ongoing robust evaluations of commercial AST devices and how resources through, you know, the AR lab network and CDC can make this happen. Yes. And, and as you have mentioned, uh, you know, definitely it's, it's very important, this type of testing goes right where we want to make sure that we detect this resistant organisms and we want to put out an, an accurate result out there that's going to affect the, the patient at the end. And, and we want to avoid, you know, the, the spread of these organisms out there. And anything else that you want to add about the, the importance of doing this type of testing on AST devices? Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is, um, I think it's really important to, you know, con continue doing these post-market evaluations, um, you know, with the AR Lab Network um, or in collaboration with the um, AR Lab Network. And I think we in public health, particularly the labs and the network, have the resources and expertise to really challenge these systems and try to stay ahead of the curve. And so while we do see, you know, a very biased, resistant population, I think this offers us an advantage to see, you know, when resistance emerges, we can answer the question, are these systems equipped to detect resistance now? Um, so it's, I think there's a, 
really good niche here where public health could play a bigger role and, you know, whether that's continuing to perform um, these studies within the AR lab network, collaborating with additional partners like, you know, you all in the clinical laboratory community with industry um, and federal agencies. And so, you know, I also think it's important that the, you know, us as a microbiology community as a whole continue to conduct these these studies and disseminate, you know, the real world observation through through these publications. And I say real world to emphasize, you know, testing contemporary isolates um, or challenging isolates that are known to have emerging resistance mechanisms that perhaps weren't available during the manufacturer's clinical studies for FDA clearance. So, you know, in our situation, we really needed to know how the GN7F panel worked when faced with you know, we need to accurately categorize resistance in order to be confident to use the this panel and the AIR lab network. And, you know, we had the full spectrum of isolates that we could test and the resources that we needed. And we really hope that the information you know, we gathered and our conclusions made can help um, others interested in implementing this panel. Definitely. So, um, you know, Amelia, thank you so much for for taking the time and, and, you know, as I said before, it has been great. And before I close the episode, is there anything else that you want to add? Um, sure. I just want to thank you for, you know, having me on, on your podcast. And I really appreciate the opportunity to share our work and recent findings. Um, you know, I think this is a good opportunity to, again, you know, start collaborating um, across our community. And really, at the end of the day, it's the patient's life or, you know, well-being or really outcome on the line here. And when susceptibility testing is not available, has performance issues or unknown performance characteristics, or even when breakpoints aren't supported by the device, healthcare providers don't have that proper information needed to determine whether a particular drug might be the right treatment for the patient, you know, resulting in patients not receiving the most effective therapy, unnecessary side effects, treatment failures, and the eventual emergence and resistance of antimicrobial resistance. So, you know, no diagnostic tests can be perfect, but we really want to make sure that they are the best that they can be and address any needed improvements early, you know, alongside the evolving bacterial population. It has been my pleasure. And and as always, you know, I like to I always talk to tell the audience that, you know, it's, it's always such positive experiences when I reach out to guests, but always when I I reach to uh, you know, my team members from the CDC, it's always a positive experience. And so once again, you know, thank you so much for taking the time to coming into Let's Talk Micro. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. And that, my dear audience, is the end of this episode. I hope you enjoy learning about this evaluation of the GN7F panel and learning about the CDC's AR laboratory network. Maybe you were familiar with it, maybe you weren't, but I'm, as always, I am happy to share this information with you. Please continue bringing that passion to what you do. It's so important. You do such great work 
And thank you for the support. Please continue downloading episodes. And if you have any suggestions, you know, reach out via social media or via email. I am so grateful for your support. So, as always, stay motivated, stay safe, and of course, continue talking micro. Until the next time. Bye.